This is my Ikuruaka, Stories of Haputanga. This podcast was produced by Hapai Te Hauora with support from Noku Te Ao Like Minds. Whakaitia te whakawhiu i te tangata. Support include and empower our whānau experiencing mental health challenges during haputanga. In this episode of Mai Kurawaka, I sit down to talk to Jo Rama. Joanne Rama is a leader within the Māori maternity space. She practised as a midwife for many years before going on to facilitate Hapu Wānanga. She talks about her passion for home birthing, for kaupapa Māori midwifery and bringing her six babies into the world, all of which she did after overcoming ovarian cancer, which left her with one-eighth of an ovary. So I hope that you enjoy. All right, no mai mai. Welcome back to this episode of Mai Kurawaka, or Lizzie Pokoingwa, and I am blessed to have Whaya Joe here with us in our whare today. Kia ora, Lizzie. Um, he tino hare koe, ko te hara mai ki te kōrero ki a koe, i te kaupapa tino rawe, you know, he um, ngā taonga tupu iho, you know, uh, traditional birthing. Mm. So, um, yeah, nā mihi. Oh, kia ora. And, um, uh, Fire Joe, should we start with um, Nohia Kwe, um, Kawai Kwe? Kapai, um, Ko Taupiri Te Maunga, oh, Ko Taupiri Me Perungia Aku Maunga, Ko Waikato Me Waipapa Aku Awa, Ko um, Ngāti Apakura Me Hinitu Aku Iwi, Ko, um, ko Kahotea Taku Marae. But, um, e I tipu mai ahau um, i runga te whenua Ngāti Pāwa um, ki Pakuranga. Uh, so he, he urban Māori ahau, um, you know, on my journey. Yeah, I grew up in, in Pakuranga, but, you know, it is Pakuranga now. And, and yeah, it was more in, after I had my children that I reconnected to my marae, the kahotia, and have always um but I also had this really cute little urban marae up in in Howard so I had a kui up there so I would always spend a lot of time it was called Torere back then but now it's being renamed Matariki and um so you know I sort of hear the karanga this week about you know go home go home and I'm really really glad that I did go home you know and um and that I I feel like you know but in saying that, that's not our whenua. So Ngāti Apukura, we lost all our whenua. And in fact, you know, our history is quite tragic in that, you know, my tūkuna was set fire to in the church. And, um, you know, so we lost all our land. But because of, you know, who we are within Papa, we were gifted land all around the country. So we're refugees in our own, in our own you know, in our, in our own land. And so... Um, yeah, the land that our beautiful little marae is on out in Otorohunga is gifted land to us. And so, yeah, we have Apakura pretty much all over the place. Um, some went to Parihaka, you know, some in Tuwhare Toa. So, um, you know, this 2020 has been a hard year for people, but it's been a good year for Apakura because, you know, the minister saw us. And, and I just, you know, for the first time in a long time feel that my iwi will one day all be standing on the whenua together. So, so you know, and, and part of that reality, you know, having um, having been born and raised in, Paku, in Pakaranga, 
you know, where there was a very small Māori population and it wasn't really encouraged to be Māori. It was actually a bit of a social experiment in trying to get us to be more white. Um, but the Māori community there, Ngā Hauwhā, were really, really strong. They built, you know, they built a club where they could gather. They built a marae. You know, like I actually always acknowledge my Ngāti Pakuranga whānau because a lot of the tikanga in terms of manakitanga, I learned in that community, not from my home base. Sure. So, um, you know, we still have the whānau home there. My children live there now. And, um, yeah, so... Um, what 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 I do remember is a lot of the going home was for tangies. You know, like I'm the only daughter. You know, I've got five brothers and dad. I don't know. I was his favourite. They know it, and <laughs> um, so I always went with dad to the tangies. And and so we had some nurses in our whanau, and they were people that I really aspired to be like. And um, so yeah, I think. And my mum, you know, my mum was a caregiver, took me to work when I was 14. So I was, you know, laying out dead people at a really young age, spending lots of time with really old people that I really loved. They were they were so wise, you know. And um, so, you know, she lied and told the boss I was 16 and I was 14. So my journey began as a 14-year-old. I laid out my first dead person when I was 14 years wow. old and with my mum, you know, washing that two papaku and, and yeah, she really, really taught me some some key sort of things as a as a, as a caregiver. Anyway, um, so she applied for I I left school and went and became a telephone operator. And but you know she had really wanted to be a registered nurse, so she applied for me to do my enrolled nursing for me. And um, I remember at the interview it was an old Greenland School of Nursing, and the, the head nurse said, "Oh, you're a bit young." But anyway, I got in and I got to leave home and live in a nurse's home and it was like really cool. And there were other Māoris in my class and they were old. I was the baby. I was the baby. And you know, I got to go nightclubbing with them and partying with them. <laughs> and, and I was like really cool. And everyone borrowed everyone's clothes and I would have flash clothes every weekend. <laughs> and you also. And the thing about that training, you got paid. And, you know, you also, part of living in the nurse's home, you got food every day. And, you know, it was actually, wasn't too bad a transition. And I had my own bedroom. <laughs> so, you know, it was it was pretty cool. Anyway, I finished my enrolled nursing and headed to Australia because, you know, there was a lot of people heading to Australia in the early 80s. And I was like, I'm going to Australia. Got over there and worked in a factory making washing machine. And went to parties every weekend. They played the guitar. It was like being at the Tungies, the after party from the Tungies. And it was cool. Anyway, um, and then discovered I had ovarian cancer. So came home. Like had surgery over there. They were going to give me a hysterectomy at the age of um, 18. And I, in fact, they said a bilateral oophorectomy and I knew that that meant I would never have children. So I came home. Um, we paid for a private um, gynecologist, someone I'd worked with in the surgical wards before, and we had this quirky relationship. Anyway, um, and that you know, we we were really good friends. He was a staunch Catholic. I was questioning my Catholicism, and yeah, it was just really cool. So when I found out I had cancer, I knew he would be my surgeon, and if there was anyone in the world that was going to give me a chance to have children, it would be Liam. Um, so we got him. 
went private, went to Mercy, couldn't have done this at National Women's in the early 80s because they did whatever the Australians said was best to do and they would not have questioned Dr. Baccarini. So I got left in the eighth of one ovary. Um, the other ovary and for eight. one eighth of one ovary and one fallopian tube. And the fallopian tube was very scarred from the surgery. Um, in fact, my body is a testament to racism in the health profession because they gave a gorgeous 18-year-old's body a classical incision that went from my belly button to my bottom. And I'll tell you what, I had the best abs ever and they destroyed them. But anyway, now that scar, you know, that once I couldn't even look at is my badge of honour that I, you know, overcame all of that and went on to have seven beautiful children. So Seven. Seven. And so my first pregnancy was in my first year, my comprehensive. So after the surgery, uh, before I actually went in for the surgery, I applied to my comprehensive training at MIT and again got rejected. And then maybe three weeks after my surgery, there was an extra class that was allocated because of the nursing shortage, and I got in that extra class. So um, anyway, to first year, it's pretty intense. They hadn't, they weren't prepared for this extra class of students, and so things were pretty muddled. And in all of that muddle and mess, I stopped trying to have a baby, got pregnant with twins, dizygotic twins, so wow. two sperm, two eggs. Does it run in your whānau? Yeah, my mum, my dad's a twin, my mum's had two sets of twins, you know, so I actually, but I believed growing up that babies came in twos, oh, wow. and I would ask people that only had one baby, where's the other baby? Oh, wow. Because <laughs> that was my reality, babies came in twos, so. So what was that like falling pregnant with twins after going through that, having an eight? Wow, it was phenomenal, and I knew I was pregnant, but they were sending me for these scans, they thought I had more tumours. You, know, you read the reports, it's just so bizarre, and... um Anyway, I lost one of those babies, and it was sort of like they were relieved because it wasn't possible that I could get pregnant, let alone get pregnant with two babies. So that was the beginning of quite severe depression and pregnancy for me. That was the journey for all of my pregnancies. So, yeah, first pregnancy twins, last pregnancy died because I got it twins as well. So first, um, first birthing experience, horrific, traumatic, national women's, um, you know, they broke my, I mean, it's 1987, uh, it's 1988, so the the Code of Patient Rights hasn't come in. It's still, you know, everything is our way, not your way. Arrived at hospital in labour, told that my mother couldn't stay with me, I could only have one person, um, you know, then got to fully quickly and had a baby. And then they broke the cord on the placenta because that placenta I knew also had the, you know, my other, my baby I'd lost would have been a part of the placenta because that's how it worked. Um, like I, I had learned about the cultural practice that, you know, we keep our whenuas. In fact, that's the one thing the aunties did tell us. Um, and I did learn it in, you know, in, in that first year because when I did my first year training in 1987, that's where cultural safety was just being introduced to the nursing curriculum. We were the pilot at MIT. So I don't think it fully came in until 1990, but, um, yeah, so, you know, there were, you know, there was two reasons why I wanted my funeral. One, I knew it was a cultural practice and my baby was there. So to, um, and, and because, you know, I had to go to theatre afterwards for an epidural to get a manual removal of the placenta, 
um, and then sort of, you know, I've got a new crew now. I've got theatre staff. They're not the staff that were with me at the birth who are told I'd want my baby's whenua. I have to tell these new people. And um, and I remember this Māori nurse, this older woman, Māori nurse, saying to me, what do you want that for? Is that your dinner? Now I'm a whole lot wiser. You know, I was 21 at the time, and I just thought, you stink ass. You know, but I also felt really hurt and I remember withdrawing and, you know, like it had been, uh, you know, the doctor had tried to do the manual removal without the epidural. I was raped straight after giving birth. You know, no permission, no consent, because that's how it was. Anyway, um, severe postnatal depression followed, you know, as it would with, with that type of birth experience. Anyway, I, you know, go back to nursing school the next year and then in my last year in 1990, I remember this day vividly. I was at um, I was at Papakura Maternity Unit and the law was changed. Helen Clark was the Minister of Health and the Nurses Amendment Act went through unopposed. Very, very few law, you know, changes and acts go through unopposed and the Nurses Amendment Act went through unopposed. And, and I remember thinking then, this is the way that I could work directly with my whanau. You know, that actually midwifery is the doorway to me working with Māori whanau. Because what you got to remember is there weren't Māori units. They were just starting to spring up now. Okay. So if, as much as we talk about structural racism and institutional racism, it's actually improved. It was worse. You know, in fact, you know, when I trained as a nurse, all human beings would see. And so that was where the cultural safety you know, acknowledge the treaty, acknowledge the fact that, you know, we have different models of health and well-being and ours is one that's not just limited to the physical reality. We have an emotional reality. We have wairua, we have whānau, we have whakapapa. So, you know, I suppose I, I was right there at the beginning of all that sort of that transformation mm. within health, which is probably why I'm really impatient 30 years down the track, you know. So like, why is this not happening? And yet it is. We now have a... Yeah, Bachelor of Māori Nursing at Awanuerangi at MIT, where I trained over 30 years ago. You know, we're about to get a Bachelor of Māori Midwifery. So, you know, we have a Bachelor of Pacific Nursing. So things have changed, you know. I just, um, I suppose I've just been at that pioneering part of of how, you know, our health services transformed. But, yeah, so anyway... I, I finished my nursing training and I thought, right, I'll go and work at National Women's for two years because I knew that I could do my midwifery. If I worked at National Women's, I could get sponsored to do my midwifery and get paid while I do it. Because remember, I've got a baby, you know, and she's, um, you know, she's two years old now. And so I have to think about her and I don't really want to, you know, stay poor student forever. Even though I was probably a little bit luckier that, you know, I could still work as an enrolled nurse and bring some money in, but it was it was still hard. Anyway, I um I couldn't get a job at National Women's. I could not get a job as a registered nurse, even though um, you know, I'd You're been qualified. I was qualified, I was told there was, you know, such an such a huge need lack, for Māori yeah, nurses, yeah. lack of us, all through my training, like, oh my God, you're gonna be such an asset. And um I then thought, okay, well, maybe it's mental health. Maybe that's where I need to go. 
So I was going to say you are very passionate about mental health and wondering I've been in with you. You are very, I mean, I feel like you really read the room and you give your cordial based on what you see fit. But the times I've been with you, you are very clear on um, supporting whānau with their mental health during hapakina. Why is that important to you? I'm assuming your lived experience. I think because of, of my lived experience, you know, like, you know, no one was happier in the world than me to be pregnant. So then to all of a sudden be having thoughts of killing myself, I was like, what's going on? You know, and and to be like not able to sleep, to be overthinking stuff, you know, it was like, it, it freaked me out. And, you know, it was 19, it, it was 1987. And no one talked about mental health, you know. And I do remember talking to my doctor and they put it down to the fact that I'd been through ovarian cancer and it was normal. But then I did talk to one counsellor at MIT and she gave me Louise Hayes' book and it changed my life. You can heal your life. What's the book? You can heal your life. And so Louise Hayes, you know, she was sort of way ahead of her time in terms of the metaphysics behind illness. And so I learned that I created my own diseases and my own reality in my life. I suppose I've got to put some context in my life. Not, you know, I grew up in a pretty suburb called Pakuranga. I grew up with a violent alcoholic, you know. So dad was a jake, must say, give him acknowledgement, 40 years sober now. You know, he's my greatest hero. So um, I sort of understood how I had created cancer so young in my life. And I think um, I'm forever grateful for that for that counsellor giving me that book, you know, because otherwise I think I would still today be a victim to my situation and and I don't think I ever would have had those seven babies because part of it was about affirmations. You know, I was on a journey learning to undo a lot of the reasons why, you know, my programming had prevented me from loving myself. And so, in fact, what the cancer did and what the depression and pregnancy did was it taught me how to love myself and it taught me to be really committed to me. And it took a long time. You know, it didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen with that one book. It was like from 1987 to 2003. So that's, you know, I'm messed up. <laughs> and that's okay. You know, I own that today. Um, and, yeah, so I suppose it wasn't until my third pregnancy that I was diagnosed with depression and pregnancy. Now, it's still one of those diseases that people don't know a lot about. Yeah, or and don't talk about. Don't talk about. And I think. Except you. <laughs> except you're, me. You're really because up I, front of That's that. right, because yeah. I nearly died so yeah. many times. And so my daughters suffer badly from this, you know, and so, which is why I sit on the part of board, because, and which is why I'm so passionate about traditional birthing. Okay, so um, traumatic birth with Jade, but doing midwifery training, pregnant with Tito Hedinger. Um, you know, there is no Māori midwife, even though we're now three years we've had independence. There's no independent Māori midwife out there, but I had the best Pākehā midwife. But in saying that, you know, she didn't know anything about traditional birthing, but, you know, we had this beautiful home birth and all the whānau came, and just naturally and instinctively, me and my partner knew how to give birth the way yeah. our tūpuna did. It wasn't until years down the track where Papa taught us about that the memory is forever in our DNA, you know? Like, that's why we're not learning te reo. We're waking up to it. We're not learning traditional birthing practices. It's not lost. It lives within us. But it's finding the 
the spaces and the places where it can be awakened, where we can remember and not freak out when we're visioning this stuff, where you're seeing stuff that happened, you know, a long time ago. And when you get to look into, you know, those windows and time past and time. You know, one of the things I learned, I suppose, in that journey of learning about traditional birthing is that time is not real. The past, present and the future all exist right here and now. Because I'm creating my tomorrow today. So how is it separate if I'm creating it today? Which is interesting because you go into a hospital and you are on a clock during birth. That's right. If you have been laboring for more than X hours, it's, oh, got to give you this drug, got to, you know, they'll, the alarm bells ring you on CC. But I am particularly interested if, for us to go back to what you were sharing before around your experience with depression. What got you through that? Because I imagine there'll be whānau listening who are going through it. And, and that's why I'm so passionate about the whānau and traditional birthing practices. That's why I'm alive today. See, because actually that stuff in the Louise Hayes book, that's what our tūpuna practice. That's what I learned from Papa Joe further down the track. You know, that we have to be so mindful of what's in our mind all the time. You know, and that's why the importance of takutaku, of, you know, returning to those traditional ways of being. Okay, so in traditional times, we didn't doubt ourselves. In fact, we were tino whakahihi, you know. And um, so, so what, what, what I realised, you know, and then, you know, I, I had to know hitting and then I went, you know, I just had this gifted, like, journey and I got the best midwife in the world to mentor me. And then I had the best midwife practising. In fact, you know, I always say your first midwifery love can never be replaced. You know, and Janet and I had this. I thought it, and she's handing it to me. You know, there was a there there was a depth to our connection that was I still don't know how to explain. And so that you know, so I have um, I have that that exp- so I'm I'm caring for all these women, and the whānau are teaching me their tonga. They're teaching me to milk the baby's cord. They're teaching me, you know, the importance of you know, to midi midi the babies, to sing ori ori, you know, the importance of learning to reel and having our babies brought up in the in the reel. You know, I would have stopped at number four, you know, but there was one queer that said to all us Māori midwives that maybe our third hui, the greatest contribution that you can make to the Māori nation is have as many babies as you can. And she's so right. And it's a numbers game. The world is a numbers game. So I think, oh, you know, I've done my part, had seven. <laughs> <laughs> you know, brought them all up into real. Yeah. And so, you know, that whole sort of taking that journey opened up other doors and then you meet those tohunga, you know, and then you become their midwives and they teach you. And so, and of course, everything I learned, like the muka, using paunamu, karanga, karakia, takutaku, ori, ori, I just started doing it for myself and water birthing. The day I discovered that water birthing was in my papa, you know, that Mahinarangi gave birth to Rokoa in a hot spring. I was like, I knew my body was aching to be in water to give birth. And, oh, my God, that first water birth was just profound. And this, you know, the water birth after that, again, was just incredible, you know. So um, and then learning that there is no time in birth. In fact, clocks 
That's why I'm glad you brought that up. You know, I remember Nan Talbot say, at one particularly long birth, that time does not matter at birth. You know, you are in that moment. You have the privilege. So if, if you're thinking about, oh, I'm going to be tired for work, or I've got to go here, or I've got to go there, then you don't deserve to be in that space. When you're in it, you're in it. Okay, so, so yeah, I, you know, it was like every time I saw Fano do something, it woke up that with a me, and then I'll have another baby and another baby. So, you know, the last four, I had four, two, and none. <laughs> Finished with my set of twins. And even with them, you know, they were 32 weekers. I caught her myself because I had her in a hospital. So we're just putting, dispelling the myth that, I, you know, there's this urban myth out there that I gave birth to the twins at home on my own. Yeah, so, you know, able to have that in my story. And then as my daughters have grown and had given birth to their babies and, you know, it's just natural and normal that they will want to birth in the pool at home. But also in that, you know, we when we need to go to hospital, we do. You know, it's about we've got the best of both worlds. Um, and I, I suppose the last two have been born in hospital and part of me is like, why? You know, why did you two, the boys all got born? You know, at home, and why did my two little granddaughters want to get born in hospital? And there was a purpose in that journey. You know, there was a purpose in the midwives that we met in that journey and going into hospital. And and I think, and the last one, it was really important that we listened to my daughter that we, and we went when she wanted to. Because, as I said, my daughters all suffer from depression and anxiety and pregnancy. And I think if we hadn't heeded her call to go, it seems like the anxiety that she had previous to her pregnancy has now been eliminated. So this is what I mean. I, I absolutely have lived experience of when we restore, you know, when we decolonize and we re-indigenize our birth space, this profound healing like doesn't happen anywhere else. Now, I've seen two to three generations of a whānau heal when a baby's born on the whenua on the whenua that hasn't had a baby born on it for a long time. I've seen, you know, a whole whānau in tears as they bury that first whenua back on their whenua. And so, and now I have also the privilege of seeing some of these babies that I caught that are now adults having their own babies, and that's tempting. You know, I do feel like I want to go back to midwifery, but I also know that for right now I've been called to teach that traditional birthing knowledge in Wananga. And so you can't, you know, like it does, you know, I did midwifery and I was also raising seven kids and I'd always felt like I had, you know, straddling multiple wakas and always feeling like I was about to fall into the awa. And one of the things I want with my journey with my grandchildren is that I am there for them, that I'm never going to put anything before them like I did with my children. Midwifery came first. And I, it was what it was, you know, but if I could do it all again, my kids would come. You know, so that's why I always say to younger women that ha what happens when you have a powerful birth is you want to be a midwife and you want every woman to have that. Well, don't do that until your babies are a bit older. You know, like that, that first three years, they need, they need to know that you are available and, and yeah, when you're catching someone else's baby, you're not available. So, you know, I've always sort of said that maybe in my 60s, 
because the midwife that mentored me, she did her midwifery training in her 60s. So it's always been a little bit of a standing joke that, you know, in my 60s I'll, you know, I'll because the Bachelor of Māori Midwifery will be there and I'll go and do my training all over again. Yeah. And, um, and spend the last, you know, and spend, because Joan practised for 20 years. She retired at 80. Yeah. And, you know, I I suppose it's, I've been blessed that I've never, um, it just feels like I've never actually gone to work. Yeah, because it doesn't feel like a job, does it? Thinking back to, you know, you've talked about birthing your baby, but your upbringing, your midwifery, and when you think back to all of those experiences, what part of your life stands out and you think, I was my truest self? When I was giving birth to my baby. And I suppose, you know, sort of facing the prospect that I may never have that experience and then experiencing it quite traumatically. But also, like, I didn't know any different. Yeah. But I, but that hand up into my vagina trying to peel the placenta off, that was horrific. But you've got to remember that I had witnessed and I had supported traumatic birth because I didn't know any different as a student enrolled nurse, as an enrolled nurse, you know, as a, and as a student nurse. But there was something in me that knew that stuff was wrong, you know, and I and I do um I call them starlight moments, you know, where you, there's stuff that you know and then you're present to it and you see it. And I remember that at um so this and a birth that I had in Natifato would have been in my first year of practice and the mum, you know, she was an older mum, she got told that she couldn't you know, have a home birth. Um, she's she's gorgeous, you know, and um and we met and I show you know, I just recently all I had to to convince Māori woman to birth at home was my photo album of my birth that I'd had with Toto Hiringa. And like your photos, these were powerful photos. And people got it and they wanted it. And um someone stole that album, isn't that funny? It's back in the day of, you know, camera rolls. So yeah, yeah. it's gone, it's gone. Anyway, um, and so anyway, she she goes into labour and then baby's sort of, sh- you know, showing some signs that it's not too happy in there and, the you know, midwife that's, um, you know, more experienced than me and I had a student as well, you know, sort of saying, oh, I think we should really go to National Woman. Anyway, then this woman's mum arrived from Wellington and she walked in she said karakia and we all just calmed down as we sort of getting packed up to go she goes no 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 we have karakia and then she does a karanga I just remember sitting on the ground crying because I, I, I dreamt that you know so I suppose I've, I've had these profound dreams throughout my life and there are some dreams that you know that are just dreams, they are just your mind emptying stuff and then there are other dreams that you never forget or you repeatedly dream, but that was one of them and um, anyway, you know, we tidied up and then we come back in and it was just full poverty for the baby Waiata, everything that a baby should have 
And, you know, in retrospect, I'm like, oh, we didn't even have mocha. We didn't, you know, like we hadn't got into that that space. Like we hadn't researched, we hadn't found those taonga yet, but it was still really, really beautiful. And, um, you know, and, and his grandmother's like really famous in Te Ao Māori, you know, and I, and having her, like she went back to the National Trust and came back with a film camera and made this little video, and it's on a VHS, that's how old it is. And um, so, yeah, that's um, Queenie Reedy, you know, and, um, but she she also taught us about, you know, the importance of composing waiata for each baby and, you know, the um, she knew so much about human growth and development in Te Ao Māori and, and she just continued to be support for us Māori midwives, you know, and what we were doing. And you know what? There wasn't a lot of support out there for us. Yeah. Uh, Māori Women's Welfare League didn't want to know about it. Um, you know, because there were some really powerful medical people in there that believed that actually we were missing out on our C-section. So to fight to have normal birth, you know, like, in fact, we should have been getting the more, um, what are they, I remember one who, a more sophisticated type of birth considering oh. our complexity and, yeah, it was, it was like there, there wasn't any support there, you know, so I was like, nah, back the truck up, they're yeah. not going to help you. Um, there was a whole lot of, you know, Māori health units were being born, Māori community workers, and, oh, I remember one of them saying to me, you're not Māori because I couldn't call it all Māori. You know, and that whole ugh, that white Maori from Pakaranga. So there was all of that, you know, um, all of those barriers from our own, which yeah. I get today, is the impact of colonization. Oh, yeah. You know, and so um there wasn't easy, you know, and in fact when I graduated as a midwife, there were sixty seven Māori midwives on the register and only thirty four of us were in practice. So, yeah, part of sort of finding Janet, creating Putu Opua that created Tūruki Healthcare. We then, of course, called the first Māori midwifery hui, which we held in Wintec. And, um, and so that was in 1994. And, and that was because Becky Fox had come up. You know, we'd all banged into each other, Sudi hui, and then we said, right. So we had another hui at Middlemore. Betty Hunapur, you know, was amazing, creating space for us. Alan Tito. And so then we planned, for, I think it was from November, October to March, the first Māori midwifery hui. I don't think we've had a hui that great. It was fantastic. And, um, yeah, you know, Namaya's still around, but I don't know that we create the spaces for us to, you know, feel safe, to unload the impact of working in a structurally racist system. You know, racism in midwifery is real. I've, you know, people have said I cut cords with my teeth. People have said I'm a meth addict. People have said, you know, like so much crap about me that, thank God, I didn't believe it. But, you know, if I hadn't done all that work with all those beautiful tohunga that had, you know, come onto that journey, I would have believed their yeah. story about me. And I've seen midwives do that. I've seen midwives, you know, only last two to three years because they believed what other people believed in them. You know, and that—that's sad. You know, I think I did well to stay in practice for eighteen years. I still catch babies, but I do have a legal midwife with me now because 
I know we want to do it our birth. Bloody COVID. Peter always was saying, what about Psycho lives like an hour and a half away, but he so wanted you there. And you know what? And I'm going to tell you two right now. I was <laughs> so both. At least just joined us. Oh, I was supposed to. to be at both your births. At yeah. both your births, and see, you know, and because I was like, why did I really thought I was going to be at these births? You know, but you didn't because you thought an hour and a half was too. I would. My mentor died in the rest home over here. I came up here every weekend. My Cook Island whānau live in Army Bay. And that's why I said to you I wanted to come here today because this is a special place for me. But also, I had already prepared myself for both of you to be at your birth even without your mum. Number two, Joe, number so, two. So make sure you I don't know if Philly edit, wants more kids. Make sure you edit that. <laughs> yeah, and no, I like like both of you, like I'll be I was like really disappointed. Like, did they not get my invite? I'm sure I said it loud enough <laughs> if you need me. You have a bit of a birth addiction, don't you? Oh man. It's and a I drug. Was, you know, and I was like, whose birth was I meant to go to recently? Ah oh, the the boys that, you know. And I was supposed to be at that birth, and that was supposed to be an unassisted birth at Ayla's house. And then the midwife made her birth at Papa Kurum because of COVID. Oh, I yeah. couldn't go. Yeah. Wait. But see, you said a home birth. I could have come here, and you were planning a home birth. Number two, Joe, number two. No, but, if but, Peter had his way, we'll be repopulating the entire Māori population up here on our own, so yeah, there's cool. plenty more births for but you I to just, come to. But I want you both to know that, you know, like I was sort of like. A bit meh for you. I was. Okay, I have a part I, <laughs> I thought. I thought maybe they didn't believe me. <laughs> you thought we were joking. You thought we thought you were joking or something. Yeah. Um, I have just a part for that. you, and maybe we'll wrap it up on this. Thinking about those who'll be listening, I reckon there'll be some people thinking, you know, I'm hapu. My journey being hapu has really kind of shown me just unlocking what it means to be Māori. I want to have a Māori birth and. You know, thinking about my dreams of my baby, thinking ahead, that really, I think, conjugate that, unlock that. What would be your advice or for Carol for those whānau who are wanting to have a Māori birth um, but not sure where to start? Look, just come to the wānanga. There are wānanga all over the place now. You know, there were, there were like only two or three happening and now they're like pretty much in every space. So... And, and, yeah, I'm mindful. Somebody said to me this week, you know, that had been at the last one and we've rebranded and they couldn't find us. So we need to do more around being visible right. so that you know how to get there. But, you know, it's that thing about being persistent. So what would you type on Google? Hapu Wānanga. Hapu Wānanga. Yeah. yeah, in your area. Now, if it's not in your area, you know, like, check out the other ones. One of the things we're going to do is we're going to make it happen so that everyone can join by Zoom if they need to. Yeah. Yes, it is a different experience. You're not going to make your mocha probably if you're in Perth, you know what I mean? But but it, but you're still getting that mātauranga. And, you know, the other thing, I just read the, the, um, an article yesterday and talking about, you know, one mum was really sort of down about not being able to get a Māori midwife. It's not about having a Māori midwife. The Māori midwife, midwife today is a, you know, is a post-colonial, post-feminism construct. It's not a... You know, the fucking prerequisite for having a body. It's not a prerequisite. And in fact, 
there are many, many culturally competent non-Māori midwives out there that will support you. Because sometimes you go and get that Māori midwife and you think that she's going to get tick, and then she goes, oh, what's that? Right? You know, because she's calf too. And, and so I suppose that's part of it is really, again, creating spaces that Māori midwives can come in and decolonise safely, yeah. learn about, you know, no, it was pretty haphazard the way we learned, but we were the first, you know, ones off the block, okay? So it was like, and it should, the road should be a bit smoother now. And if it's not, we want to know why. And that's the other reason why I don't, you know, be a legal practicing midwife because then I'm censored and midwifery council says what I can say. I'm not allowed to say that racism's out there in the profession. You know, I'm not allowed to bring disrespect to the profession. Well, you disrespect me when you continue to, you know, behave in a racist manner towards our cultural practices. So yeah, I'm I'm not going to be silenced anymore. In fact, I never was. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> when I think of you, I think you. I see you as a an agitator. I don't know if that's the right word, but someone who just keeps pushing the boat forward. Yeah, just making sure we. Well, I well I heard this other word recently, and I really like that disruptor. Disruptor, yeah. I like the disruptor, and yeah, I suppose I am an agitator, and so part of it too is that. Um, you know, we need more agitators, mm. and I and I get that. But but part of it is that when you do, when you speak the truth, you won't get a job in the hospital. You will never, you know, get a senior leadership position. But if you sort of, you know, maintain the status quo and just be a good little Maori, you get those opportunities. But, you know, this is the thing. I've never been about that. Either. You know, my... I suppose my, um, you know, it's because I did think about doing additional study and people were listening to me if I'm Dr. Joanne. I was like, I, you know, I actually don't have time. I don't have time to do that and be able to love my partner, love my mukos, love my kids and, you know, do that stuff. And and I just I just know that I've, um, my truth will be heard by those that need to hear the truth. Yeah, and and the main ones are mums. Yeah, you know. I was going to say, from the perspective of Fano, who has been supported by you in Wananga, we don't care what tohu you have; it's yeah. how you make Fano feel and what you bring to that yeah space. So, Kilda Joe, thank you so much. Um, excited Kilda. to see this go live. This is my Ikurawaka stories of Haputanga. This podcast was produced by Hapai Te Hauora with support from Noku Te Ao Like Minds. Whakaitia te whakawhiu i te tangata. Support include and empower our whānau experiencing mental health challenges during haputanga.